So since last spring, we have had an intern working with us named Annika, and Annika's done a great job in a whole variety of areas. And so one day last fall, I said, to, I, I found myself thinking about, I need a discussion question for Sunday mornings. And I said, Annika, give me a discussion question. And this is what she gave me. Would you rather throw up on your hero or have your hero throw up on you? We didn't put a graphic with that, did we? No. Okay. Yeah, that's what she gave me. And for obvious reasons, I decided not to use that question until today because I'm feeling very confident with myself today and thought, hey, let's break it out. It's been six months. Let's see how it goes. Now, I would totally and completely understand if you decided not to use this as a conversation starter following the service today. But you do have to admit that a a question like this uh, can really get us talking. I mean, we could bond over how gross and disgusting this question is and what kind of pastor would ask this question on a Sunday morning. Legit, okay? Completely legitimate. We could discuss how much we don't like questions like this that only give us two options, right? I mean, why does anybody have to throw up on anybody like at all, right? This is why I ever ask my wife a question like this. She looks at me like, why are there only two options here, okay? Who's throwing up? Why? Or you may decide that you want to fully engage in this conversation. And when we ask this at junior high, because of course you ask junior highs this question, or maybe senior high, uh, one of them had to answer like this. They're like, hey, if this happens, you can clone your hero, right? I'm like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that's how cloning works, but uh, some of you are shaking your head saying, no, that's not going to help. Wait. Anyway, some of you might have answers to that. You're like, you were, had an answer right away. You know, what a question like this does is it provides us, you know, with a starting point that gets a conversation going. And starting points are important, especially when maybe we aren't really sure where to start, you know, especially when we aren't sure, you know, do I even know that person? We don't know each other very well. How do I even get a conversation started? You know, if somebody were to walk up to us uh, today and say, hey, tell me about yourself unprompted, where would we even begin? You know, we can't possibly tell, you know, someone everything that there is to know about us. That would just be completely overwhelming. But what we do is we take snippets of our story. We tell something, a bit about ourselves that we think another person might be interested in that gives, gives them a sense of who we are. And hopefully the result would be that over time we get to know each other. They get to know our story. We get to know their story. In a sense, this is what we are doing in this mini-series that we're calling Welcome to West Heights. You know, it kind of feels like right now we are in a period as a church where we need to introduce ourselves a little bit, but there's so much that we could say. And so instead of overwhelming you and giving you way too much information, we have chosen a couple points of conversation uh, that serve as starting points for those of us who might be wondering, you know, what is West Heights all about? Who is West Heights? What is West Heights, you know, what is West Heights all about? So these are just starting points that are hopefully better than that initial question that we asked. Well, feel free to use it. I'll be listening to see if you use that one in the foyer after church, okay? Now, last week, we started with a, a quick overview of our story, and it was an overview of uh, church history. It started right at the beginning, and it led right up until today. To, to today. It was quick. It was very superficial. Somebody said, hey, that wasn't just a 30,000-foot view. That was like a 100,000-foot view of church history. We covered 2,000 years in like 25 minutes. Like, it was good. Cruising. Um, but the, the reason why we did this is because we recognize that we have been shaped by the stories of those who've gone before us. And it's important to know where we've come from if we want to plot the course to where we are going. 
Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about since is the reality that, you know, while I have been shaped by the story of my family, that I still have the freedom and the responsibility of becoming my own person. You know, as I've reflected on my, uh, my upbringing, there are things that I've chosen to adopt for myself as well as things that I have determined that we're going to do differently. And you know, while we have a theological family, and that's what we talked about last week, while we have a theological family, we aren't the same as those early Anabaptists that we talked about. We aren't the same as those early BIC folks that we talked about. And we aren't even the same as the people who planted this church. You know, the world is different. We are different. And so while understanding our story is important, you know, as a church, we have the freedom and we have the responsibility to make this story our own. And so I'm going to note again something that we talked about last week is that in our story is the reality that at various points in time, there are groups of people who sat down to reevaluate their faith and how they understood what it meant to be a Christian. And they, they did this by studying scripture together, by praying together, by having discussions together. And in the process, they, they plotted new courses for what it meant for them to, uh, to follow Jesus for the times in which they lived. But what remained at the the same. What remained at the center was always Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, as we, as we continue talking about who we are and, and what we are about, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about our doctrinal statement, which reflects the collective beliefs of our denomination and even our church. We could spend a long time working through that. And as much as I love a good doctrinal statement because they can bring clarity to what is important to an organization, I sometimes admittedly struggle with them because the temptation can make those conversations about whether or not we agree with all these things or not. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I I think that it's good that we have something that helps us understand what is important to us. But we also need to realize that our relationship with theology is, is, is not static. That the way we think about and we understand Scripture, our experience with God, and as we reflect on our own circumstances, all of these things change with time. You know, we are not the same people we used to be, and we're not yet who we are going to be. You know, we are going to learn things, and we're going to experience things that will shape how we understand our faith. And while a doctrinal statement serves an important purpose organizationally, I think that we need just to name the reality that as individuals, we might not all be in agreement uh, with every aspect of it all the time. You know, there'll be things that we wish were worded differently. There's going to be things that we think are missing. There's going to be things that are included in the doctrinal statement that we wish weren't. And because who we are and our thoughts change over time, our response to a particular doctrinal statement might flip-flop. You know, we might think it's great one year and another year might think, oh, it could be better and then we might go back again. Things change. Our thinking changes. And so all of that is preamble to say, I don't want us to get stuck in the particulars of our doctrinal statement. Rather, I want us to think about who we are in terms of what does it mean to be centered on Jesus. And what I mean is that who we are and what we do and what we believe ultimately has Jesus at the center of all of those things. Again, we can, get into all sort, we can get into all sorts of arguments about how we think differently about different things, but these things are not our main focus. Instead, what is at the center of everything is Jesus. And so one of my hopes for us as a congregation is that in a world that seems to be increasingly polarized, and we've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks, that instead of choosing to hunker down with people who think like us, who act like us, or the, the, the pull away from other folks who don't, 
that instead we choose to move towards one another, move from our various extremes to gather around Jesus. And I think that this focus and the resulting diversity best reflects the bigness that is the kingdom of God. And so our big idea this morning is that we are Jesus-centered because Jesus gives us the full picture of God and God's will. That's our big idea this morning. And to help get us started, we're going to look at some verses from the book of Hebrews, and then we're going to wrap up with a few application uh, type of thoughts. But we, to begin, we're going to read uh, Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And through him, also, he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, as we read these verses, we, we can't overlook how the author of Hebrews is describing what God is like. You know, here, God is not distant and removed from people like us, but, but rather what he is saying is that God spoke to our ancestors. And saying that God spoke to our ancestors, he's telling us that God initiates conversations as an expression of his desire to be known by people like us. You know, over the past few years, I have come to recognize that when, you know, a politician has good news to share, that they give plenty of warning, plenty of heads up that good news is coming. They pick up prime time in the news cycle. They make sure that everybody's there who can cover the story because they got good news to share. In contrast, there's been other times when it's clear that, you know what, they kind of don't want anybody to know what they're announcing here. And so you get press releases at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. There's, no, there's nobody standing in front of a podium. They're just hoping that nobody really notices or it gets quickly lost in the news cycle. You know, when it comes to how God has made himself known, he isn't hoping that it's going to get lost in the noise. He isn't hoping that people won't hear him. Rather, he wants us to know him, and, and he wants us to know what he is about. And so this speaking didn't just happen once. It didn't just happen in a singular format that could be missed. But the author of Hebrews says that it, God spoke at many times and in various ways using people that he calls the prophets. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see that sometimes God speaks from mountaintops, and other times he speaks through dreams, and he speaks through miracles. Sometimes his spokespeople are like highly respected. Everybody knows who, he, who that person is, and they're listening. Well, other times, he, it's a donkey that speaks. God spoke at many times in various ways. But then we get to verse 2, which starts with, with the word, but... And there seems to be a sense here that God is, is changing his approach. Yes, God has revealed himself to humanity through the prophets in the Old Testament. And you know what? That was enough for people to know God and come to love God. But in a sense, there is more to him than was getting through. And so the author of Hebrews says, but now God has spoken to us by his son. Now God has spoken to us through Jesus. 
And in this, we see that God is committed to us. God wants us to know him, and he has been in constant in his efforts to make sure that if we are interested in discovering who God is and what God is about, that he can be found and he can be known. See, through Jesus, God has made himself known. Now, the author of Hebrews has a lot of things to tell us about Jesus that are about helping us see that when we encounter Jesus, we are encountering God. And these verses are packed with facts about how Jesus expresses God to us. They tell us that Jesus inherits all things. That is to say, everything that belongs to, to, everything belongs to Jesus just as it belongs to God. And not only does everything belong to, to Jesus, but Jesus is the creator of all things. We're told in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here we're told that the creating force of God is embodied in Jesus. We read a similar statement in John chapter 1, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. You know, Jesus is one and the same with God the Creator. And not only does he create, but in this passage we see that Jesus is the ongoing presence of God who continues to sustain life. You know, without him, life itself would stop. See, as we meet Jesus, we meet the creating, life-giving God. You know, when the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, we can think about how the radiant light of the sun, you know, reaches the earth and how we get to experience the warmth and light of the sun just by, by, by sunbeams or sun rays coming, and we get to sit and just enjoy that. And just as a quick aside to make you think about spring, today I formally booked the church picnic, June the 11th, okay, a little bit advance notice. It's February, but we got it booked, so it's coming. So we can sit outside and we can enjoy the rays and the warmth of the sun together. Now, one of the things that Jesus does is he brings the glory of God to us so we can experience the warmth of God for ourselves. But in case we're tempted to think that the radiance of God's glory is somehow less than the fullness of God, the author of Hebrews nails it down with this statement that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And really, the word representation isn't quite strong enough. Rather, what is being communicated is that everything about who God is and what God is about, everything about God has been impressed into the person of Jesus. You know, Jesus is not less than God in any way, but who God is is fully and properly embodied in Jesus. And as the embodied God, Jesus does the work of God, accomplishing things that nobody else could. We already mentioned that he sustains life, but the author goes on to tell us about how Jesus deals with even the reality of sin. See, in Jesus, we see the perfect picture of who God is and what God is about. Now, because Jesus is the perfect picture of God and God's will, God's hopes and dreams for us, he is our main focus. And so I want to wrap up this morning uh, by talking about two ways that we put this into practice that I, I think are an important part of who we are as a church. And the first is that we really focus on the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, this isn't unique to us, but just saying that this is, this is a part of who we are. Now, this, this, this does not mean that we, we ignore other portions of the Bible. That, that not, we don't do that at all. 
You know, all of Scripture is important. All of Scripture is God-given, and we regularly make use of it. But being Jesus-centered means that we prioritize studying the life and teachings of Jesus because we believe that Jesus helps us know God and understand what God wants of us perfectly. You know, sometimes God can seem abstract and removed. But in the Gospels, we find somebody that we can relate to. There we meet Jesus who eats, he drinks, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he, he takes a nap even. You know, there we meet Jesus who gets upset by the circumstances that he sees around him. And sometimes he, he cries and other times he flips tables. We, we meet God in the flesh. Jesus is God with us. And so we pay careful attention to his life and his teachings. You know, I've heard it said that Anabaptists uh, take the Sermon on the Mount literally. That's one of the characteristics of being Anabaptist. And as a church, I think we agree. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's where we find the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't checked it out in a little while, let me recommend that as, as some reading maybe this week. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that's where we find Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God will be like. And the Sermon on the Mount really does seem to touch on almost every aspect of our lives. It speaks to how we think about other people. It, it speaks about our relationships, the relationships that we have with the people we like, as well as the people that maybe we don't like, the people that we think are, are tempted to call our enemies, or the people who might even mistreat us. It speaks to our relationships with wealth and stuff. And it speaks to what does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? It touches on so many different aspects of, of life, and it, and it points us in the direction of, like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it looks like to live in the reality of the kingdom. And so much of it, admittedly, seems upside down. You know, it seems very different from the values that we know and we experience every day. But Jesus says that this reality is how it should be and how it will be. And so Jesus invites us to be a part of it. And in doing so, we are invited to be a part of how the kingdom of God grows. In Matthew chapter 5, we read these words. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, as we read these, these verses, I'm reminded that elsewhere that Jesus says that Jesus says these words, I am the light of the world. But here he turns it around. And he tells his followers, you are the light of the world. And that is to say that as we receive the light of the kingdom, that, that in how we live our lives, we have the ability to, to show that light of the kingdom so that others can see it for themselves. We are a part of the kingdom being shown in how we live our daily lives. And to be a part of this means that we need to focus on the life and teachings of Jesus to allow him and, and this vision for the kingdom to reshape our lives so that we increasingly reflect, reflect the life and love of the kingdom of God. The second thing that I'll note this morning is that Jesus is the lens that we use to understand the rest of Scripture. You know, sometimes we can find ourselves struggling to uh, understand what the Bible says. I mean, it, it, it is a, a big book. It is a book that has been written over a long period of time. It covers a culture that is very different from ours, and sometimes it, it can seem odd to us. And, and the question could be, hey, how are we supposed to make sense of all of this? In Luke chapter 24, we meet Jesus in conversation with two unnamed disciples as they walk to a village called Emmaus. 
And these two disciples are confused. They've been sure that Jesus was somebody special, and then in Jerusalem, they witnessed Jesus being killed, being crucified as a common criminal, as as a criminal. And the question is, what are we to make of this? This isn't how they understood the scriptures. And so when Jesus shows up, they don't recognize him. But as they walk, Jesus starts to talk about the scriptures, and he explains them, uh, the scriptures, in light of what has happened to him, including his death and his resurrection. And at the end, there's this aha moment where things make sense that previously did not. See, Jesus understood that, that all of scripture points to him and is best understood in light of him. And so practically what we're talking about is having Jesus in our minds as we read through the Bible and looking to him to help us guide, through, guide and help and our understanding of what it is that we're reading. And we look to Jesus to help us. Now one of the realities of my life in the last couple of years is I have turned 40. And as a person who's recently turned 40, well actually I'm 41, so I'm solidly over 40 now, um, I have realized that I need these. I didn't used to, and these won't help me right now because I need them for the computer, not for looking at you, otherwise my eyes are going to hurt. But I didn't used to need these. You know, I would have said up until about a year ago, I was, my eyes were fine. I thought I was seeing things just perfectly fine. Some of you have been wearing glasses your whole lives, and, and you're like, oh, poor guy, right? Like, you know, not at all. There's no sympathy coming from over here. You're like, yes, sucker. All right. You know, but I would have said, hey, I was seeing things just fine. But then I got my glasses, and suddenly I'm realizing, finding myself thinking, like, I think I was missing things. There were things that I didn't notice that are suddenly clear. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we can be tempted to think that everything we, we read carries the equal authority. And what this means is that what Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is on the same level as what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And this can lead to some difficulties, because eventually we're going to run into problem, a problem of knowing what do we do when we, run, when we read an Old Testament passage that talks about war and violence and killing everybody, and Jesus' commands to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. What do we do? You know, part of our story that we talked about is that we are part of a Christian tradition called Anabaptists, and Anabaptists don't see that all scriptures weighted the same. Again, don't hear me wrong. All scripture is given to us by God and is extremely important. But we understand that Jesus is the lens in our glasses that, that helps us truly under, see and understand scripture. In a book called Anabaptist Essentials, Palmer Becker writes, When we want to know what scripture says about a certain matter, we first go to the words, example, and spirit of Jesus. We may go to other scriptures for further background and understanding, but our primary guidance comes from Jesus. When we encounter difficult passages, we interpret them through the spirit and nature of Jesus by asking, what would Jesus say? Or how would Jesus handle this situation? Now, I'll say up front, this doesn't suddenly make reading the Bible super duper easy. In fact, it adds an extra little, you know, lens, a complicating factor to think, you know, we have to think about it in a different way than perhaps we were before. But it gives us some really good questions to help us wrestle through some of the things that we come across. Now, I said, I think I said I had two closing points, didn't I? I don't really lie. This morning I wrote a bonus one, so it doesn't show up on the screen. And so with this, I'm going to close. You know, being Jesus-centered is not nice, neat, and tidy. 
Instead, I think that being Jesus-centered means that we embrace the, a sense of messiness and allowing space for people to be in process. And I think this is what we see Jesus doing, you know, as he spends time with real people who are less than perfect, people who had doubts, people who had fears, people who didn't always agree with Jesus. Instead, some of, the, some of them feel like they know better than Jesus at times. You know, the people who had personality flaws and, and more. And that this is who Jesus spends time with, allowing them the space to get to know him and experience him. There was no doctrinal questionnaire for, for Jesus' first disciples. If there was, they would have failed. Rather, they got an invitation to follow him. You know, as a, as a church, we, we do have this well-thought-out doctrinal statement that helps shape who we are, but I think that the authors of that statement would agree that what's most important is that we are Jesus-centered. And this means that we make space for one another to get to know Jesus and experience Jesus in our daily lives. We, we make space so that people can wrestle with doubts and fears and our patterns of thinking a, that might change in, res, in response to our, the circumstances and experiences that we might have. You know, that stuff, that's real life. And it's messy at times. Being Jesus-centered means being present in that space and engaging in conversations that sometimes aren't easy. And being gentle with our convictions and open to how other people might help us uh, discover how Jesus is at work in our lives and help us follow Jesus more faithfully. In just a few moments, our worship team are going to lead us in our closing song here, and it's based on the Apostles' Creed. And the Creed is a summary of what the early church believed, and it's very much, as I was looking it over this morning, it's very much centered on Jesus. And so I'm looking forward to singing that together. West Heights, it's exciting to be on a journey with one another. And if you are new to West Heights, if you're exploring us, I just want to say in particular, welcome to West Heights. We hope that you have a positive experience asking questions, learning about what we're about, and just experiencing all of the West Heights things that we do, for better or for worse. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Lord, thank you that you have, uh, that in Jesus we have, we get to meet and experience God in his fullness. Lord, we're grateful for how you teach us about what it means to follow you. And Lord, that you are willing to, to sit with us when we are less than perfect. God, in our sinfulness in our fears, in our doubts, and in the times that we think that we know what is best, Lord, you make all sorts of space for us. And God, you speak to us in those situations, in those times. Lord, we're grateful for how you are at work in our lives. And God, it is our prayer that you would shape each one of us into uh, someone who's, uh, people whose lives are being increasingly, are increasingly look more and more like Jesus. And so, God, this morning we ask that you would, would work in this community, that you would uh, use us to encourage one another, that you would use us to, to be present with one another and, and, to, and, and to minister to each other in our times of needs, Lord, that we would have meaningful conversations that wrestle with some of the hard things of life. And, and what does it mean to follow Jesus in this situation or that situation? Or that you would create in us a willingness to listen, to ask good questions, And Lord, to trust that you are present. Lord, thank you for who you are. Amen.